0: Welcome to Dad Rocks, a podcast for dads who love music, made by dads who love music. And now, your hosts,
1: Josh and Joe.
0: Hello and welcome to Dad Rocks, the podcast about being a dad and loving music and how the two intersect in our lives. I'm your host, Josh, and today I'm joined on the show by Ed Alstrom. I've known Ed for most of my life as he and his wife, Maxine, have been close friends with my family for probably close to 30 years. Ed is an incredibly talented musician, probably the most talented musician that I know, who has played with several well-known artists, led his own ensembles, and is currently one of the organists for the New York Yankees. He's also, most importantly, a father of two young ladies and now a grandfather of two grandchildren. I really think that you all are going to enjoy it, and I can't wait for you to hear this conversation in a little bit. But before we get to my conversation with Ed, I just want to take a moment to talk about the show in general, and you know, just my appreciation for everyone who's listened. Uh, this is not the end of the show. You know, <laughs> this is not going to be the last episode. Uh, we do have another interview definitely coming up, and we have a couple others that I've, you know, I'm trying to book. Right now, but I, I just want to, you know, take this time to thank those of you who have been dedicated listeners to the show. And you know, you probably noticed the last episode, Joe and Steve weren't uh, with me. They're not with me on this show either, and that's not because they don't want to do the show. It's because life has come in the way of doing the show. You know, Joe has two kids. He's got a full time job where he's traveling over the country. He's traveling all over the country right now. He's got to choose, you know, how much time is he going to spend on, you know, this passion project when he's got family duties, he's got work duties, things that he needs to take care of uh, to make sure that he and his family are taken care of. Um, And Steve's the same thing. Steve is, you know, taking a step back, focusing on his career and on his wife, on his life. And I can't fault them for that. This is why I'm taking this time now to, you know, thank all of you who are listening you know, because you're the reason why the show continues to go on. You know, it's hard to, to to do a passion project when you're not sure anyone is listening or reading or paying attention. You know, I did a music blog for two years in grad school. Well, it was mainly the last year of, of grad school into my first year back from grad school. And it was super easy To do it when I had the time in grad school because, you know, at the time I really didn't have a job. I was focusing on my studies. You know, I was single. I was, you know, living by myself. So I had the time to put my energy into something that I was very passionate about. I had that time, I had that freedom. Yeah, but once I came back and had a full time teaching job and then started dating my now wife, that time shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. And I had to decide, you know, whether I was going to keep doing it because it did get harder. I didn't have as much energy to put into it. I should say also that with my blog, I had no idea who was reading. There wasn't a lot of stats or, you know, the stats that were coming out that I was, I was getting on WordPress, it, there wasn't a lot of clicks. I'd get some random people messaging me, you know, making comments about this or that. But it was, you know, really something that I did just to do to take this creative energy that I had at the time and just put it out there. This show is very similar in that way because, you know, we're not making any money off of this. We're taking our own time, you know, we're putting a lot of energy into this to make it as good as we think it sounds. And, you know, we've heard back from a lot of you that it sounds great and you love what you've heard. So knowing that helps us continue this show, or at least, you know, right now it helps me continue this show since I'm doing it alone at the moment. This is not going to be a permanent thing, I don't think. I think Joe and Steve will be back on the show. But one thing I'm going to ask, and I, you know, I say this at the end of each show, but I'm asking at the top of the show is, you know, if you do listen, you know, let us know that you're listening. Let us know that you like or you dislike or whatever. Whatever you think about the show, let us know. Whether that's a review, a star rating, you know, a like on social media, a, a retweet or a repost or you know, an email – or if you know us personally, a text message, because that is the fuel that will keep this show going. You know, I I see the stats, I check it crazily, cause I'm you know I'm weird like that, and I see that our shows have you know we've gotten a steady stream of listeners and all around the country, some from all over the world, and that's awesome. I think that's freaking awesome, and I love the fact that my and our creative hobby or this podcast is getting people to tune in and listen. We've asked every time on every episode, pretty much. And I'm asking you guys now, just, you know, go on to Apple podcasts, drop a review. If it's a three-star review, so be it. If you're like, man, their music picks suck. Say that. That's fine. I don't care. Just know that those reviews help us you know it helps us know that you're listening we can tweak the show in different ways but anyway i know i'm, I'm rambling on and on and on and on but I, I again i want to thank everyone who's listened who's listening now because it means a lot you know taking time away to do something like this um you know when i could be spending it with my family You know, mainly my wife, you know, because my son's asleep while I'm recording, usually taking a lot of free time to edit, a lot of free time to try to reach out to potential guests, to do social media posts. You know, it's a lot more timing than you think. And knowing that there's people out there who listen to the show, who enjoy the show, you know, is awesome. And so thank you so much for listening. You know, if you can do that one little thing of helping us out by sending a review or commenting, that would be awesome, too. And I will be saying something similar at the end of the show, like I do, to close out the show, just to remind you all. One other thing that I wanted to mention was about some of the music that you hear on every show. You know, the intro song... That's our, you know, our theme music and you know, kind of the, the the intro and outro music. That is a song from my band, The Cheap Moves. The song is called Hank, and all of the transitional music that you hear is from Joe's band, Tall Days. The specific songs are Crosstown and I believe it is um, Hey There, Man. If you do like those tracks or even part of those tracks, we would love it if you listened on Spotify, went on our band camps and checked the the songs out. Because that's another way that you could be supporting us is supporting our music that we've put out, you know, in the past. You know, you don't have to, but it would be awesome if you did. And I just also wanted to make sure I gave proper recognition to our bands because, you know, a lot of times shows will talk about, you know, the theme music is by this and and we don't do that. Um, But, you know, I'm doing it now. So we hope you take a listen to the music that both of us have put out over the years. But now we're going to get to my conversation with Ed Alstrom. I really think you all are going to enjoy it. And there's some really cool stories that he has in there. All right, here we go. Ed,
1: welcome to Dad Rocks. Thanks for having me, Josh. Uh, How have you been lately? Everything's good. Uh, Just finished up a school year. I know you did too. Mm -hmm. Uh, You'll probably be going back to it. I probably won't. (laughs) I don't know yet, though. Yeah, you had a bit of a a crazy school year yet. (laughs) It's been a crazy five years. I I came to school teaching very late, uh, and I've had an interesting five years in it. And uh, I don't know if at my age schools are going to hire me. Well, you know, it's not the easiest job and uh, it's It's, (laughs) school teachers are superstars and should be making superstar money.
0: Well, I I thank you for that. And I totally am 100 percent on board with what you say. Uh, You know, I know this has been this was several months ago, but I do want to congratulate you on the birth of your second grandchild. How has it been uh, being a grandfather?
1: It's great fun. Uh. You'll experience it someday, and the, the the hands-on stuff on a steady basis stops. So you just get it every once in a while, mm-hmm. and uh, you know they come and you kind of everything explodes for a few <laughs> hours, and then they leave. <laughs> And your life is your own again. So it's it's different. Yeah. Uh, but it, it you do get a taste of what it was like to be a parent. Yeah. You know, as being a grandparent, but just a taste. Yeah. It's Just enough.
0: Have you imparted any knowledge uh, onto onto Sophie,
1: your, your daughter, uh, about being a parent? It's hmm. a good question. Uh, you know, my, my wife is constantly giving her advice, <laughs> and she is starting to take some of it. I think initially she was resistant to it, and. Uh, you know, when her older one, who is now three, turned two, I would say a year or so ago, uh, she started listening to Maxine more. Mm-hmm. At that point, so I guess that's just a phase they go through. Whether they decide to listen to you or not, yeah. But you always, you always just naturally give them your advice because <laughs> you want to, you want to help correct them, yeah. what's wrong. It's not like you want to like tell them no. This is the way you should do it. But if you think it's something that can make it easier for him, you're going to naturally just impart that wisdom. Yeah,
0: and you know, I I was just—we were talking a little bit before we started recording. uh, You know, you uh, and Max like to post, uh, you know, videos and pictures uh, of your grandson with, you know, doing a lot of musical stuff.
1: Um, What's his level of interest in music at the moment? He seems to be pretty interested in it, which scares me a bit uh, because I would not be pushing him into that. As a vocation mm-hmm. And I, didn't, I never pushed my kids into it as a vocation yeah. So they dabbled And they never really learned to, uh, to, to master an instrument or sing pretty well But they they dabbled a lot My grandson comes over here And he's got access to every musical instrument You could want mm-hmm. And he likes to do it Yeah, And he likes to go downstairs and bang on the drum kit He likes to sit and bang on the piano And we have kids' versions of drum sets And pianos for him As well as the grown-up ones and then he can. Uh, I, I gave him a microphone yesterday. I saw that video. Yeah, it was and very he cute. just turned it to Mr. <laughs> MC. He's just sticking. And he can't really talk yet. He mm-hmm. just babbles, uh, and you can understand maybe fifty to seventy-five percent of it. But he just he just went MC on yeah. like, over here. We have. A blah, 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 blah. And he's holding the mic and he's holding the wire and he, he like took to it. So we're thinking maybe he's going to be a stand up or something, I don't know. Speaking
0: of, you know, you mentioned how you didn't push your either of your daughters really into music. I always found that a little interesting because, you know, you and Maxine are, you know, you almost eat, breathe and, you know, live music and you're both incredibly talented. So was that a conscious decision to kind of let them do their own thing or did you, you know, try to push them to play, you know, t- take piano
1: lessons or anything like that? They had access to it. Yeah. Certainly. There was music around them all the time because there was always people in and out of the house rehearsing. We were always playing. There was always music playing. So Lord knows they had access to it. And they started learning instruments. And they took some lessons and this and that. And they just never saw it through. Right. You know, it, it. you have to get over a certain hump before you're a musician. You know, you have to dedicate yourself to that and you know that yeah absolutely. and you know what it takes to do that mm-hmm. and you'll know right away if david has it or not yeah. i mean when once he's once he takes to something you, know, you don't want to jam it down his throat cuz then he's going to run away from it right so we were always of the mindset well if they want to go further we'll take them there and if they don't want to go further we're not going to shove them there it was just
0: you know always curious to me because you know thinking how I was just always, my dad would always play music and it was just something I took to, my brother took to, and it was, it, it just seemed like, oh, if you're around it, maybe you'll always want to, you know, there'll be some sort of interest in there. And, you know, either of my parents were really, you know, musicians, musicians. So it's always just interesting for me to ask other musicians, like if they push their kids toward towards it to see if they'll go
1: down that road or just kind of like, well, I'm going to let them find their own path. I think your dad would have done the same thing we did. Yeah. In that if you had not shown that interest, if you'd have gotten to a certain level and just abandoned it and showed interest in something else, I'm sure he would have said, okay. I don't think it would have forced it on you. No, because I mean, I did. I do remember
0: uh, when I, I was dropped by my drum teacher, Jerry Polci. He basically told my dad, "Your son's not practicing. I'm, you know, I'm dropping him." And my dad was like, "All right, you know, if you're not going to practice, that's. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not forcing you to do anything, but I'm just letting you know I'm not paying for any more lessons. So it's, you know, one of those things where. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So. So
1: what happened? To I didn't know that happened. Yeah, I, be, or I, didn't I remember mean, that
0: happened. My, my whole thing growing up was I was always, you know. Told, oh, you're the best drummer here. You're the best drummer here. So I got this inflated ego of like, I didn't, you know, want to practice. I didn't need to practice. I could do it all for, you know, for the most part. Plus, there was the aspect of when I wanted to practice, I couldn't because my dad's. You know practice his chiropractor office was Ooh. open during the afternoon so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i wanted to play on the drum set i didn't want to practice on my pad um you know looking back i
1: wish i had done that more after that were you taking lessons with somebody
0: else nope i basically stopped after it was about in eighth or ninth grade uh or seventh seventh or eighth grade i forget but you know i did the jazz for teens program at nj pack i was always like involved with stuff you
1: know marching band i learned a lot through there um, yeah, and you, and you were playing in bands all the time. Oh, yeah. I and was, you were listening, and you had music all around yes. you, and you were listening to the kinds of music it takes to really grow like you got into jazz and yeah i was and, it was, and stuff like that and it, you knew what was what
0: right i, I wasn't taking formal lessons a, after like middle school which is something that i wish i did uh but you know that that was the choice that i made and yeah. you know you can't, can't no you had this going yeah
1: that was <laughs> so that's that's what you need
0: yeah definitely ultimately. taking in a lot of music and listening to a, a lot of stuff you know, you also mentioned how you always had people in and out of the house. One of my uh, the distinct memories of your old house uh, back in Roseland was my dad bringing me over to a, a Bob's a Bob Smith band practice down in your basement, which was this tiny, you know, I, can't, I still can't believe there was like seven or eight guys down there practicing. Um, being a working musician your entire adult life, you know, were there... Any time, you know, with a family, basically, were there any times you had to turn down gigs for family obligations? You know, Maxine's, you're basically your biggest fan, biggest promoter. Um, so I could see her telling you to take every gig, but I was just curious if there were, there were times where you were like, I can't
1: take this gig, I got to do something with the family, that kind of stuff, or, you know. Oh, yeah, there was stuff. It depended on how important the gig was. It was just kind of a, a thing where... You know, it was a club date or something like that, or, or mm-hmm. a wedding, and I could get a sub for it, or if it was a situation where I was easily replaceable, then yeah. There were instances where I had to go do the gig. Yeah. You know, but it depends on what the gig is, if you can get out of it cleanly or not. Yeah,
0: I was just thinking more just because, you know, it's conversations that Kat and I have had about, like, even when I was doing the the cover band thing before the pandemic about, like, you know, rehearsal time. And, you know, this is when David was really small and she just felt like, well, he's just out doing this. You know, when am I going to have, you know, th- that kind of like almost, um, you know, compromising, you know, time and, and stuff. Because is I don't know if Max was gigging a lot at the time either uh, when, when you know, your kids were small.
1: Uh, when I think backwards. So we're talking very late 80s into the early 90s. Yeah. Uh, I was actually working at Casio at that point. So I had a day job. Right. So I don't recall doing a tremendous amount of gigs. I would do some Saturday nights. Hmm. But generally, on weeknights, I wasn't doing too many gigs. So I was, I was like a normal person. <laughs> I was home every night, and I was working during the day. She would have some gigs here and there. But I think we were mostly around early on. I did some traveling, which was problematic. But the advantage to my situation is my wife's a musician, so she knew what it was about. Yeah. And she understood. And uh, it was never like a huge, huge problem.
0: Growing up, was being a professional musician something that you always were gunning for? Was that, was that the goal, basically?
1: Uh, that It was what I was born with and blessed with, and it was the only thing I could do well. <laughs> I would have liked to be an athlete. I was woefully deficient at that. Uh, but I loved sports, but I, and I played f- sports all the time, but mm-hmm. I was really awful. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of, at a certain point, knew, well, I suck at this, and I'm good <laughs> at this, so I better just do what I'm good at. And then I started trying to get better at what I was good at, and I, I knew that I, knew I was going to be doing that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And, you know, when did you first start playing music? When were you, you know, was it something
1: that was always in the house or, you know? My dad was a plumber by trade. He did plumbing, heating, and air conditioning. He was a general fix-it man. He could fix anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also completely recreationally played organ and accordion. Hmm. And he had a remarkable set of ears. And what would happen is I would go with him sometimes to work, like on Saturdays, he would he would go work, and I'd go with him just to hand him tools and just keep him company and, mm-hmm. and whatever. And he'd have the radio on, and he'd be laying under somebody's boiler with a welding iron. <laughs> <laughs> and there's just songs on the radio. And I hear, Edward, what's this song? What's the name of this song that's playing? And I'd tell him the name of the song. And so we'd finish the day, he'd put throw the stuff in the truck, he'd get home, go take a shower, he'd go eat his dinner, he'd go sit at the organ, and he'd play the song. Oh wow. And he is this a song we heard this afternoon? I go, Yeah, Dad, uh, yeah, that's it. And I was kinda of like <laughs> embarrassed of it. And then by the time I was I think I was like fourteen or so, I sort of say, This guy's amazing. How does he do that? Hear a song once and then eight hours later just go and play it. Amazing. So he could do that, and he couldn't read music. Hmm. Uh, I tried to teach him to read music at one point, and he <laughs> wouldn't have anything to do with it. He was like, I don't, "I don't need to do this," and he didn't. He knew hundreds and hundreds of songs, many of them that he just heard once. Wow! And he would go That's play cool. the song, and then I realized this guy's a mother. He could really like. <laughs> I didn't know anybody else that could do that. Yeah. And then I started to really respect that aspect of his talent and cultivate it because I could do that too. Yeah. He did imbue me with that. Uh, I wish he had given me some of his mechanical and handyman abilities <laughs> because I can't hammer a nail into the wall without incident. Uh, I'm terrible at like fixing up stuff around the house. Yeah. And I wish he'd, I'd have gotten some of that, but I did get the ears. And it's carried me a pretty long way. So uh, he played organ and accordion just recreationally. He loved to play, and he could really play Hmm. in that old-time style. He was very influenced by the old organists of the the 30s and 40s and 50s. So there was, you know, like Ethel Smith and and Jesse Crawford and Lenny D. and all those people. Hmm. He ingested that kind of music. That was his favorite stuff to listen to. And he could play just like Jesse Crawford. He had a very Jesse Crawford kind of schmaltzy mm. style yeah. to him. And he, he didn't know what key he was playing. He didn't know what notes he was playing. He just played. And it was it was pretty remarkable. He could really play, though. And he knew a million songs. And he would get a couple of gigs a year at certain points. Uh, oh, at one point, he had a steady Sunday gig at a restaurant. And we would go together, and we would split it. Oh, wow. There was a restaurant in Upper Saddle River called the Strawberry Barn, And we would go there on Sunday afternoons, and he would play for a while, and I would sit there and eat, and I'd go play, and he'd sit and eat. (laughs) So we split this restaurant gig, and they had an organ there, and we would just both play it. So, uh, you know, he gave it to me. I got it all from him. Oh, wow. So when when did you actually, at what age did you start playing? I was five. Oh, wow. And we didn't have a piano. We only had an organ. It was organ or accordion for me They tried to jam accordion Down my sister's throats I had three sisters who were 8, 9, and 10 years Older than me okay. And they got accordion jammed down their throat So that my, my dad had A little 12 bass accordion And they all took lessons on it Now Young developing girls right. Weren't crazy about playing the accordion Having this thing against their chest And none of them ever learned to play They got totally turned off by it and ran the other way So I I think maybe when it came down to me, my dad said, well, I'm not going to, I'm going to let this unfold. Mm -hmm. And then I took an interest in the organ. I was not interested in the accordion, but I went and banged around on the organ and I could play by ear. And my dad was like, okay. So he got me lessons by the time I was six. I still somewhere down here have the program of my first public performance and it was a month after I turned six years old. Oh, wow. Doing, and my uh, my organ teacher had this stable, and he gave, you know, all his students gave a recital, and I was on the bill playing like three different pieces on organ. I don't know how I could reach the pedals. <laughs> I don't know if I could, but I was playing organ. And that's what we had. Uh, we didn't get a piano till I was, I would say, 10 or 11. Hmm. And my dad was famous for bartering plumbing and heating services for stuff. Mm-hmm. So we had, like, gutted out cars in our backyard <laughs> that I would play spaceship in, you know, wow. cars up on blocks. Yeah. And he would come home with radios and TVs and all this. And he came, he had a truck pull up with this piano. He said, right, we got to get you a piano to play. So he gets this piano that's a player piano. It uses the rolls. Mm-hmm. With the holes in them that yep. go, but it was a pump type. You had to pump your feet. Oh wow! All right, it wasn't an automatic. You know, turn on the switch and it plays. Right. So you had to pump, and the pump mechanism was busted. So my dad, as typical, he gets a canister vacuum, hooks it up to the hose in the piano, and runs the vac, runs the vacuum cleaner in reverse to play the piano rolls. Mm-hmm. So, we had this little Hoover canister vacuum cleaner next to the <laughs> piano. If you wanted to play piano rolls, you connect them in there and you turn the vacuum on. It played them <laughs> at extremely high speed. It played them like way, way faster than you could pump. The th- so, that was the piano I, I grew up playing. But he, he took care, he got me lessons. Uh, my mom decided she wanted me to be a church organist. Hmm. So, I was studying as of time I was like 13 or so, I started studying strictly classical stuff. So I was playing Bach and Franck and Messiaen and Mendelssohn and, and all kinds of, you know, legit organ repertoire, and thus I was playing in churches. So from the time I was 12, I, I was playing in churches. Do you think that it was
0: beneficial for you to learn organ first before piano?
1: I like the way that turned out, because I got pedal technique, hmm. all right? 90% of people that call themselves organ players can't play pedals. Right. And to me, that's an abomination. You're not really an organ. You might be an organ player, but you're not an organist mm-hmm. unless you can play pedals. And More of a keyboardist. I'm sorry. Like, right?
0: yeah. You're a piano player yeah.
1: that's playing organ, all right? Yeah. And that look that goes for Jimmy Smith, Erland, McGriff, all of yeah. them, as great as they are. They didn't play pedals. Maybe on the last note of a, of a ballad or something. Right. But I play pedals all the time because... A, Grew up playing Bach fugues, so I have some pedal technique, mm-hmm. so I could do that. Now, it's unwieldy sometimes if you're playing jazz to be playing pedals because you can't have one foot on the expression pedal all the time to do that waggle in the volume back and forth that you right. need to do. But, you know, it's a, at least I can do it if I want to, yeah. you know. So, yeah, organ is a different instrument, and I think a lot of people don't realize that the organ players they hear pedals is not part of their game, but it's part of the instrument. Right. The only,
0: the only, the, the guy, the only guy, and I don't know, you know, he's he's kind of big, and, and I know you listen to him, is Delvon Lamar. I think he's one of the few these days who actually um, plays pedals with, the, with his yeah. organ because his his trio is just him, a guitar player, and, um, mm-hmm. and a drummer, so.
1: I think, I think it's handy. Yeah. You know, it's nice having your left hand free to comp for yourself and do other stuff or be able to play block chords or you know, any number of other things. Because on an organ, you're constantly manipulating sound in real right. time. You're orchestrating with those drawbars. You're pulling drawbars out and creating different sounds and textures in real time. So you got a free hand to do that too. Yeah. So I love playing pedals. I love being able.
0: You know, growing up, who were your your biggest influences? What were you listening to? What were you taking in the most uh, growing up?
1: I had everything going. I listened to a fair amount of classical music. My dad listened to everything but rock and roll. Hmm. And my sisters listened to rock and roll, so I had everything going on all around me. My dad had some classical records. He had a handful of jazz records. He even had a couple of blues albums, but he had mostly organ stuff. So Lenny D. and Klaus Wunderlich and Eddie Layton and, and, and Ethel Smith and all hmm. and Jesse Crawford and all that stuff, I heard all the time. So I got that organ sound, in my, that old cornball organ sound in my yeah. brain. And he listened to a lot of, like, Montevani and, and like Muzak kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And he was that, and then I had three older sisters. One was a Beatle freak. One was a Stones freak, and one was like a, the, my older sister was like into '50s duop stuff. So they all had that oh, going wow. all the time. So I grew up with everything around me. That's amazing. And I got heavy. I got heavy into jazz like junior high school when I started running with some kids, and we all kind of got into Miles Davis and John Coltrane and everything and Albert Eiler and all that crazy stuff together.
0: Yeah. That, I mean, I'm assuming, you know, probably in jazz band, you guys were playing, you know, mainly standards from the 30s and 40s and stuff. But, I, you know, the stuff that was coming out in, that, in the late 60s was definitely mind-blowing in terms of jazz.
1: Well, yeah, and, uh, you know, we, we took to it. Like, I, I I, took to that stuff right away, and you did too. Yeah. You know, from the moment I heard all of it, I embraced it. I mean, I think, I think the first guy I really latched onto was, was Thelonious Monk mm. as a piano player because I could do that. Right. I heard Art and Oscar Peterson. I was like, "That's great," but I can't, <laughs> I can't do that. I don't have the chops to play like that. Yeah, but I could, I could do a really convincing Thelonious Monk imitation by the time I was fifteen or so. Use that kind of space in those voice because that was easy to do from a technical standpoint. Right but the moment i heard all of those guys i embraced even the even the whack wacko stuff like albert aller and sunron stuff mm. i love that stuff as soon as i heard it <laughs> and you play it for most people and they're like oh, turn that off that yeah. horrible, horrible noise and i was fascinated by that stuff there's a lot going
0: on i mean that's the thing you know you can hear a lot of different voices and a lot of different stuff in every, you know, in every song. So I can I can see, you know, a kid who's really into music di- digesting that and dissecting it and trying to figure out what's going on. So, you know, growing up, were you... What kind of groups were you playing in? Were you playing with in a lot of bands,
1: um, you know, through high school? Tremendous amount of activity going on. I grew up in Ridgewood, New Jersey. So uh, and there were really talented people there. So I was doing all kinds of bands. Uh, we had... A couple of ensembles that were into avant-garde stuff so they kind of started at Frank Zappa and worked further out (laughs) so they would do some Frank Zappa and Blodwin Pig was like as close as they got to like pleasing a crowd and then they were just doing really outside stuff like, like Steve Reich kind of stuff and uh, really avant-garde stuff, and it would do school assemblies, <laughs> and kids would sit there. And you know what I found is that in Ridgewood, it was like we weren't making any effort to play material they knew or liked. We mm-hmm. just did what we wanted to, and kids dug it because we were good, and because we, okay. we were their friends. And they looked at us and they said, "Well, we can't really get with this, but it's really it's really good." So I, I guess we got lucky in that we we had some critical acceptance. Uh, my senior year, I was in a band where I was the bass player. We had a guitar player. This kid was my age, and he was like the love child of Eric Dolphy and Charlie Christian. <laughs> he played He played like, he sounded like Charlie Christian, but he played lines like Eric Dolphy.
0: Oh, wow. And this kid was like 15
1: years He was remarkable. It was me, him, and two drummers. That was the band. And one of the drummers played congas and toys, it's a, yeah. the, but a lot of times they were both on kit. So that was the band, and we just jammed. We were a jam band before jam bands were a thing. So we would just play, yeah. and we'd just play for 25 minutes and stop and go into something else and play that for half an hour. That sounds very much Bitches Brew-esque. It's that. what it was like. We, In fact, we did songs off Bitches Brew. Oh wow! We did. We took some of those melodies and just ex, on those grooves and just expanded on those. Yes, that's exactly what it was. The irony was at my graduation, my senior year, they had a thing where we did the graduation at the high school, and it was this enormous graduating class, like 770 kids oh, wow. in my graduating class. Ridgewood High School was so the graduation ceremony was like three and a half hours. It was just yeah insane. Then they bust us to a catering hall. Called Terrace on the Park in Queens out by mm. Shea Stadium. Oh wow! And we had a party there from like 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. or something. Right. Then they bust us back to a junior high school in Ridgewood where they had a, a like a project an after party set yeah, up yeah. for us. So we're going to be in the in the gym at Benjamin Franklin Junior yeah. High School from two to five or two to six in the morning. So it was an all nighter. Yeah. So they booked a band. For that event. And the band got the date crossed off, or it got crossed up, you know, 2 to 5 a.m., mm. but they were set to come, like, the next day or something, because they, they, anyway, they screwed it up. So we got there, and there was no band, and we're all just kind of walking around. Then I have this group of parents come up to me and say, listen, we're really in a jam. We need to have some kind of music here. Can you get your band together? And I'm like, oh, man, I don't, you know. I'm with my girlfriend. It's my yeah. graduate. I don't really feel like working. And the guy looked me in the eye and said, we'll give you $400. <laughs> now, in 1975, $400, that, he might, that was like, what, 3000 now yeah, or exactly. something? And my jaw dropped, and I said, I'll get right to work on it. So I was calling my friends. Like be, they weren't. A couple of them weren't there. I called these guys at like two in the morning. I woke the guitar player up. I called. The, I woke his father up at two in the morning. I said, "You got to wake Keith up. You, we got to get him here. We're gonna play. We have a gig." He's like, "All right." So we got a bunch of guys with vans and and mm-hmm. station wagons to go to our houses get the equipment. We came back and it was that band that just did like the Bitches Brew kind yeah. of gym stuff. So we played. Oh wow. And I no. guess people dug it; <laughs> they didn't mind it. And we made a hundred bucks a man in nineteen seventy-five. I had never that's, heard of money like that. That's crazy. Did
0: that guitar player ever end up going, you know, become a professional player? Or? He
1: went. He went to uh, Manis and studied for a couple of years, and then he veered off and is now uh, he's a high-powered doctor at Cornell Medical School. Oh, wow! So yeah, he he went off into his his father's. His father was a doctor, and he went into doctorate because he didn't feel like his ears weren't you know he wasn't quick like he was kind of the opposite of me he couldn't learn anything we would try to learn rock tunes but he couldn't learn them Hmm. the way they were supposed to be played because he just had his own thing and eventually that caught up with him and he felt like i'm not really going to make it as a musician i'm going to go do this gotcha but i'm still in touch with him and that's awesome he could probably still play as great as he did you mentioned you know the the, uh, amazing
0: players that you play with now, I guess you've known the Vivino brothers for 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 a long time. You didn't grow up with them though, right? Or did No, you... they
1: they grew up in Glen Rock. I grew up in Ridgewood, so we were in adjoining towns, but I didn't meet those guys until after high school, right after high school. Uh when I got pulled into a band and it was uh my friend Rave Tessar from Midland Park recommended me to Jerry Vivino to be the bass player in this band that they were starting up that was going to go play in clubs mm. and play Top 40 stuff. So I played with Jerry in this band and Frank Pagano and Rave for about three years, like right out of high school. And then I subsequently met Jimmy, who was doing a similar type of band, working the same kind of clubs we were. Like on the same circuit, so we we would do a week at this club, and then we'd go somewhere else, and like Jimmy's band would come in, and Jimmy was a keyboard player at the time, oh, wow. and I was a bass player. Yeah. So Jimmy was the keyboard player in this band, and played left hand bass, and he was good. And then both of the bands we were in kind of dissolved, and then Jimmy and Frank and I started a band, and uh, we did those clubs for a while, and then Jerry came back, and the four of us did weddings for a while. And then the Uncle Floyd thing happened because, mm. as you know, Uncle Floyd is the older brother right. of Jimmy and Jerry. And the Uncle Floyd show was a very hot commodity in the early 80s. And we, we became Floyd's pit band. Oh, wow. So Floyd was doing gigs like everywhere. Uh, right. He was doing colleges, doing clubs. It was crazy. And, it, and the bottom line, he would do the bottom line like every other month and just sell it out. He had the wow. record for sellouts at the bottom line. Be sure that it's true When you say I love you It's a sin to tell a lie Millions of hearts have been broken Just because these words were spoken And then they went to syndication and then the whole thing (laughs) kind of unraveled. And then we went on to do all kinds of other stuff. And then those guys moved out to California when, uh, when Conan, Conan moved yeah. out there. Just for our listeners who don't know who
0: they are, they were, uh, Jimmy was, after uh, Max Weinberg left the Conan show, Jimmy was the band leader. They were both, both brothers were in the band, the basic cable band, uh, for what, like 15 years or something like that? Oh, uh, it
1: was longer. It was like 26 20, years. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking
0: so were those the was that basically I guess the band that band Mr Clean which was the was the, essentially the house band right for for Uncle Floyd was that the same because that was you Frank and then um, and Jimmy and I guess Jerry, yeah me too. Jimmy
1: and Frank was Mr Clean per se okay. working the clubs and then uh, Jerry kind of rejoined us and we became Floyd's pit band we we would most of the time add a bass player there were a bunch of different guys that came gotcha. in and out and playing bass. And a trumpet player. Actually, no, there wasn't a bass player there that often live. It was usually I was playing left hand because we had a trumpet player. Okay. So Jerry had two horns, and uh, Jimmy and Frank and me. Yeah. I was playing left hand bass.
0: Were you playing with a lot of other bands, groups during that time in, in the in the early late seventies, early eighties, and you know what yeah. was you know was, was, what was the New York scene like for you?
1: At the that scene was fertile. I mean, you could there, first of all there was like ten jazz clubs in Jersey. So you could go, if you wanted to play that kind of music, you could find a place to play. So I had all kinds of other friends, you know, Mark Skanga and Charlie Descarfino and and a zillion other people that, that I was doing stuff with. And we would go do gigs when we could get gigs. And that's the difference now is that if you're starting, if you're coming up now, you don't have places to play. And you, need, you need
0: that. I was talking with my, uh, an old friend of mine just the last episode, and we were playing we would play music in middle school and high school together. There was no place to play at all in the late 90s for, for kids or, you know, young adults, really. Like, you had to go into New York City. I think there's some more places now, but definitely, you're, yeah, there's nowhere to really play. Yeah,
1: but by then, there, it, it had dried up. And also, the wedding scene dried up, too, because the DJs took over around mm-hmm. that time, the early 90s, because you could prior to that, you could be in a wedding band, and you'd be doing 100, 120 gigs a year if you were in a good band. And the four of us were like a hell of a wedding band, because yeah. we could all sing, and we could all really play. And we worked like crazy, and we played together all the time. Even if we weren't playing the greatest music, we were playing together all the time. Yeah. And by the early 90s, and DJs took over, and the jazz clubs started to dry up. I don't know where you played, but like when you were a kid coming up, you should have had that opportunity and you got denied that. And that's yeah, that's sad because I was I was fortunate when I came up, there was a million places to play.
0: I guess the only fortunate thing is my dad created opportunities for us to play, which was, he which was nice. He was, he was very creative. Yeah. Uh, speaking of my father, he always mentioned this story. And I, I I don't know how accurate it was that I guess when Letterman w- w- got his late night gig, it was down between you and Sh- Paul Schaefer for the, the bandleader gig. Is that is, I don't know. I don't know. This is this is I don't know if that was. He always mentioned something about like Letterman.
1: Uh, no, I, w- I was not un-
0: under consideration for that at all. I, I, I don't know why he always said that it, it was. It was just something he always brought up. I guess he just made, like either misheard something or, or, or made it. I just wanted to ask.
1: Let me, let me say that your dad was an uh, esteemed and invaluable champion of my career. I mean, he yes. was incredibly supportive of me, and I will never forget him for that. Uh, and just for being a great friend, Yeah. aside from that. But he was, at any time I had a gig, he was there. And uh, he was just a brilliant supporter of mine. Even even when I wasn't feeling it, you know, he yeah. he pumped me up. He, you know, he was encouraging in that way. But uh, my crossing paths with Paul Schaefer was during a show called Leader of the Pack, which was the music of L.A. Greenwich. Hmm. And this show was hatched and conceived and initially performed at the bottom line. And we're going back to 1983 now. So uh, what it was was the musical reviews, all of Ellie Greenwich's music, which is this fabulous body of pop music. Be My Baby, Hanky Panky, River Deep Mountain High, I Can Hear Music, uh, Then He Kissed Me, uh, all the Darlene Love stuff, all the Bobby Sox and the Blue Jeans stuff, Chapel of Love. I mean, This woman was like one of the champion songwriters of mm. all time with her husband, Jeff Barry, at the time. But the show was based around Ellie... And um, I got pulled into that because the Vivinos were involved, and Jimmy was the music director. Okay. And Paul Schaefer was the piano player. So I was involved as the uh, second keyboard player. So I was playing synth parts and bells and chimes and strings and hmm. whatnot behind Paul. So that's how I got to know him. The funny incident was when we were we were rehearsing and rehearsing and rehearsing, and then opening night rolls around. You know, we get, in, get into town... And I'm around the corner from the bottom line in this restaurant eating. I'm by myself, and I walk out, and this cab pulls up right as I walk out on West Broadway. Paul Schaefer hops out of this cab with his arm in a sling. Oh my God! And like, he "Hey, babe, you got you have to play piano tonight. <laughs> I fractured my I fractured a bone or something. <laughs> Did something to his arm, and he couldn't." He, couldn't play. He's left. Yeah. He has left hand as a sling, and I'm like, okay. Because I was playing piano for rehearsals anyway, so I knew all the parts. Right. So I went. Out, him playing piano and him on my synthesizer rig trying to play the string <laughs> parts with one hand. Uh, so that was pretty funny. And uh, we got to be pretty good friends. And I crossed paths with him every once in a while. He he called me in to do a few Letterman shows, hmm. playing second keyboard and stuff. So Paul's a lovely man maybe that's what the the, what the story was and my dad just got, the, or I
0: misremember what my dad said, I mean, because this was like he, when I was He little, blew little. it
1: up into what he wanted it to be. Yeah. <laughs> Which he was really good at. He was unfailingly positive and supportive and he, he never dropped the ball on any opportunity to like pump things up. Yeah.
0: So, you know, you had mentioned earlier about, you know, having a, a real job, a, a day job with Casio. You were one of their programmers and you demoed uh, their keyboards, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: I was by title, they... Marketing manager, which, you know, they had to give me some kind of a title. But. Yeah
0: How did you get into that and you know, what was the push to to get a quote-unquote real job?
1: I got into that because uh, So we're going back to now 80 83 or so is going wow. in that time early 80s Uh there's a keyboard player named Jerry Kowarski who has bounced around all over the place. And he's back in the area now we had crossed paths a couple of times, but because we're both keyboard players, we were never on the same gigs together. Right. But I knew of him, and he knew of me. So he calls me up one day, says, hey, listen, I've been working for Casio, because he was already there. Uh, this is the very early days of, like, Casio electronic mm-hmm. little keyboards. And he's like, and I work here full time, and... Uh, You know, it's getting to be a bit much for me, so I need somebody to help me, like, go out and do these demos freelance. I said, yeah, I'm looking for work, sir. So they were sending me out to, like, Macy's and service merchandise (laughs) and Kmart and places like this that carried Casio keyboards, and I would sit in the store and just play and, like, talk to people on these little keyboards, and they'd pay me. Okay, cool. So I did that for, like, a year and a half... And then Jerry said, listen, they, they like what you, you're you doing and you know the product now and you, you kind of have the lay of the land and you want to come work here full time. And I said, my lifestyle was, you, you probably live this lifestyle for a minute yourself where you kind of go to bed at four in the morning and wake up at noon. So that's the real like musician's lifestyle. Right. So that's the life I was living. I was going to bed at four in the morning, waking up at noon or one in the afternoon. And I said, "Well, I'll try this. It's tried nine to five. We'll try it. I don't think it's gonna. I thought it would last about three weeks. And I was there for eighteen years. Hmm. <laughs> and then, uh, then the Casio thing. Once I got there, Casio keyboards exploded into this <laughs> phenomena that was like the biggest leisure time electronics buy before Nintendo. Yeah, Nintendo kind of took." The business away from us, but we were like every home had to have a Casio keyboard at that point, like 1985, 86, and then not if that weren't enough, the synthesizers were coming out. So the CZ 101 came out. Casio just made this pro synthesizer and just said, "Here, sell this." And (laughs) Casio America had no idea how to sell this stuff because they knew how to sell tonnage to you know. major uh, department stores and and stuff and they had no idea how to sell to musical instrument stores so they had to like regroup and get a sales force just to go to San Ash and guitar center and places like that and sell that kind of stuff so all of a sudden we had this pro line they were making guitars and they made electronic drums and they made the MIDI saxophone and they Built building up the CZ into full-size machines. So we were like crazy busy with this stuff, and we were we were programming sounds for the CZ synthesizer. Then Jerry split and moved to Pennsylvania, went to work for InSonic hmm. and left me there, so I inherited that whole position. I just stayed there through ups and downs and ins and outs of different sales channels and stuff for years and years and years. And uh, it was cool to have a day job. That was music-related, too. So I got to meet some cool people. Because at one point, they had endorsees. They went out and got Stanley Jordan as a guitar endorsee. I didn't even know they had a guitar. Like, honestly, I didn't know that Casio had their own guitar. They made not only a MIDI guitar, which they made a Strat that had MIDI pickup in it. And it could transmit MIDI information pretty well. So guys would hook it up to a synthesizer, and they could play. And they made a guitar with a synth built into it. Oh, wow. For a while. And at that point, they somehow cooked up a deal with Stanley Jordan. So he became a Casio endorsee. And then they made this toy saxophone that had sounds in it and it had MIDI. And they got Kenny G to endorse oh, that. Wow. Alright, so here's some good yeah. stories coming up. All right. Also, uh Herbie Hancock, who was a notable gear whore, he would just go to every company and just okay. get endorsements <laughs> and get gear. Well, he came to Casio and okay. they gave him a boatload of money and say, Here So uh in the course of working for Casio, I shot a TV commercial with Herbie Hancock. Oh wow. Where he I did the music and he just acted in the in the thing and <laughs> Lip synced playing my parts. Wow. Which was pretty funny.
0: Herbie Hancock at play on the full size Casio CT650 with 465 tone bank sounds. a rhythm. Let's see the piano. Casio CT-650 with incredible tone
1: bank sound. Like every tone bank keyboard, it's the perfect plaything. Casio had this sampler, all right? The sampler, if you don't know, is a thing where uh, you can input your own sounds, the sounds you want, and then map them out on a keyboard however you want. So what one of the first things I did when Casio started making samplers was I mapped out a thing where I had a 61-note keyboard and I would have The lower two octaves would just be bass, and I had drum sounds in the right hand. So I could play like bass drum, snare drum, ride cymbal, hi-hat, crash cymbal. So I could play like a whole drum patterns with just these five fingers, right? And I could be like a bass player and drummer for somebody. So Herbie shows up at a trade show, and he sees me and my wife was working the show so we're playing take the a train and she's playing piano and i'm playing bass and drums yeah. and herbie walks in and he, uh, we didn't even know he was there and he sees this and he comes up to me and he says what did you have that sequence i said no that was me playing i showed him what i was doing he said, wow that's amazing now <laughs> i'm gonna i have to do this uh i have to do this dinner party for Cassio. i have to play this thing you want to do it with me I'm like, here's Herbie Hancocks asking me to play with him. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> he says, well, we'll talk and I'll tell you what songs I'm going to do. And then like a month go by and I couldn't get a hold of him. Mm. And finally, like two weeks before the thing, he finally picks up the phone. He says, all right, well, you know, uh, really what's happening is uh, my band was supposed to do this and uh, Cassio wouldn't pay for the band to go over so like you know i like what you you're a good musician and all but i view this as kind of a make-do situation i said okay so just <laughs> tell me what you want to do and i'm thinking like all right well, you you—you got to come into you just yeah. tell me what you want so he he tells me as, as, we're going to play a standard and then we're going to play chameleon and we're going to play rocket mm-hmm. and we're going to play maiden voyage okay so I got six samplers, I put hundreds of sounds into them, <laughs> and I had I sounded like 12 guys. And I worked on this day and night. I don't think I ever worked so hard on something in oh, my wow. life. Uh, so I had missiles flying in and out and birds chirping. And, st- <laughs> and so we got to the sound check. This was in Germany. Oh, wow. So I got to the sound check, and it's a dinner party for Casio's worldwide deal. So there's like yeah. 400 Casio dealers there, and me and Herbie. So he gets there, and he's kind of like, yeah, all right, all right okay. And he's doing just one of those things. Yeah. And he's real up-tempo. So I had this Ron Carter and Tony Williams thing worked out for him, <laughs> and I gave it to him at the sound check. He's like, he said, wow. And then he hits Rocket, and I had, like, scratch sounds and yeah. the, the groove and all this stuff going. And he was, like, amazed. He, like, freaked out. He said, well, uh, yeah, let's go, let's go talk about this. So we go to the bar. We both get plastered. <laughs> <laughs> and he's telling me about about Miles, about Bill Evans. We yeah. just talked for like two hours. And we went back and we did the gig. And it was really great. Now I have a recording of it. I, oh, I wow. played with Herbie Hancock. And that was like my crowning achievement. I never played with anybody like that. I would love to see that performance. That would that's something I feel like you should <laughs> like put up on YouTube or on your I website have audio. Or something. I have oh. audio. I'm afraid to put it up because I don't know how he would yeah. react to it. I'll get you a copy of it. It's, oh, that'd be it's worth your it's fun. So then and then we had uh, Stanley Jordan under contract. The VP comes into my office one day and she says, We have Stanley Jordan under contract for twelve appearances. We're only using 2 of those. Can you use Stanley Jordan 10 times? <laughs> I said you bet I you bet I can. I started calling dealers. Yeah. I said, "Hey, how'd you like Stanley Jordan to come to your store and do a clinic?" Ooh, so I took our two our 10 biggest dealers and I set up clinics for him. And that was a real freak show. He's playing a guitar around his neck, mm-hmm. and he's got another guitar on a stand. And, you know, his whole thing was the tapping. Thing. Yeah. So he played two guitars at once. He had one wow. on a stand and one around his neck. He's comping on one and playing solo lines on the other. And I'm playing bass and drums in my left hand. So he sounded like 10 guys. And I have hours worth of that recorded as well. And then uh, Kenny G. All right, let's 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 get to this because I would be remiss not to mention. Kenny G is hired, uh, from what I heard, was $100,000. Oh, wow. to endorse our plastic toy saxophone. <laughs> was it like an Ewe basically? Oh, it was, it was several notches below that. It was a, really a toy. <laughs> okay. But it happened to put out MIDI. So some guys could kind of, you know... Yeah. Like Jerry could do some stuff with it. Kenny G never even tried. I don't think he ever even opened the box. Mm. So they hire Kenny G for this big dinner out in Las Vegas, and we're, we're all sitting there. And he gets out there, and... He only he only used the horn for like a minute and a half. Hmm. He like picked it up and he blew a few notes on it and put it down. And then he just did his Kenny G thing. So before that, this Italian guy, Italian demonstrator comes up with the plastic horn. And it's hooked up to a bank of samplers. he says, okay, I'm now going to take you on an average day on the streets of Rome or something like that. And he starts playing this like mood music with stuff in the band. There's cars going past and people yelling at each other and construction equipment. And it was like he transported you into this magical place just using this horn, all right. And Kenny G's sitting next to me at a dinner table, and he taps me on the shoulder. And says, Are those sounds in the horn? <laughs> and I just said, No, Kenny, they're not. <laughs> <laughs> That was that was where that was at. Okay, so anyway, that's that's Casio episode. So it was it was cool. It was nice to have a day job. Nice to have that security. And I could still do some gigs. Yeah. But during that time, while you're working for Casio,
0: you were in. At least for me, I remember three distinct uh, groups uh, in the late '80s through the early 2000s. You were at, in the aforementioned Bob Smith band, which was a, um, a smooth jazz, smooth jazz, jazz, yes. jazz, jazz group. Which you had, a, you yeah. know, Jerry Vavina was part of it. Monster players. The, those albums are great. And then you were in the amazing, uh, unforgettable jazz-core punk group Chum Pot. Ah, <laughs> yes. Later on, you had your acid cabaret. Which was uh, an amazing group that still plays every once in a while. you know each one of those bands is is totally different uh, I guess with a kind of a jazz um, you know through line through 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 some of it. Like did you enjoy playing with one more than the other, or was it just kind of like whatever you were all you know I know you weren't you weren't the impetus for the Bob Smith band, but like you know was it just whatever you were feeling yeah. at the
1: time or how like what were your well, feelings about? Bob Smith Band began life as Bob's Diner. Right. So that was the original name of the band. And Bob put... I knew Bob from uh, when we did Leader of the Pack together. Okay. Uh, so he was brought into the horn section. He was a friend of Jerry's. So he had Jerry and he had Mark Lamparello on guitar. And they needed a keyboard player, so they uh, Jerry told Bob and, and Bob... Oh, Sidney. Oh, yeah. So they hired me. At the time, there was a, a bass player and a drummer... Who uh the drummer's name was Howie Gordon. And there's and Bob and Howie were kind of the co-leaders of the band. Mm-hmm. And then it got to a situation where relations got testy between them and uh it got messy, it got really messy. And the end result was Howie left the band and went and trademarked or something, copyrighted the name Bob's Diner mm-hmm. so Bob couldn't use it. That's why the Bob Smith Band album came out after Bob's Diner, because Bob wanted to, he couldn't use Bob's Diner because he was going to get sued because of the rift with Howie. And the band, it was a a bumpy ride with those guys uh, because, you know, Bob had problems leading the band. Eventually, we weren't getting many gigs, and the record company wasn't doing anything to promote it and stuff like that. So it, it unraveled, but... Yeah, the musicianship was great, and Bob was a great writer. I mean, he he wrote most of the material. He let Mark and uh, Lamparello and I have some input, and we got tunes on there as well. It was a great band, and it was fun when we were playing music, but sometimes when we weren't playing music, it wasn't (laughs) fun.
0: Uh, <laughs> I wish I was Chum- old enough to go to
1: those shows. That's all I'm saying is I wish I was Oh my goodness. Yeah. And Chumpot was something we were calling jazz core at the time because it was a it was really straight up hardcore like Murphy's Law, Agnostic Front, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Tinged with Sun Ra and Miles and Albert Eiler. Yeah. <laughs> That's as close as I can get. We had, you know, like hardcore tunes with open blowing sections and sometimes long sections of stuff that wasn't in time Mm -hmm. and just crazy, crazy stuff melded with the straight hardcore stuff. We had my old friend Kenny Watkins, who used to work with me at Casio, was the lead singer and he could scream hardcore with the best of them. Mm -hmm. And he wrote these amazing lyrics. And uh, so they had a straight up. Hardcore band And then he brought me In to play organ And then I brought Lamparello In to play guitar And then we had Like a jazz band yeah. At that point So we could blow jazz uh, We were probably The only hardcore band Out there That had no bass player but just had A Hammond organ yeah. <laughs> Instead Actually made and completed a second CD, and it just never got released. So that's another thing I'll have to get you, <laughs> is the, the secret unreleased Chumpod CD. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we did gigs where we could in town. Those joints down by the Bowery on mm-hmm. the Lower East Side, there was a bunch of clubs down there that we used to play at. And that joint in Clifton, uh, what's it called Connections. Okay. You've been there, probably. No,
0: I actually never went. Oh. The, only, uh, the only place in that area that I went to was uh, Loop Lounge.
1: Um, oh, okay. And um, yeah. I played the Clash Bar in Clifton as well, so. Oh, okay, yeah. We never did that. But we, we did the loop, and we used to do connections a lot. And then what? As the Cabaret goes on, a uh, couple, of, couple of times a year, we pull it out of Mothballs, so and we just put it back together and do what we used to do.
0: I mean, and that was just you looking to try to try something different right yeah. basically i
1: wanted i wanted it to kind of be uh Mose allison meets tom waits hmm. so i just wanted a piano trio with me singing and doing all kinds of material and some originals and stuff and we, we did all kinds of stuff and we would we would open up with a gilbert and sullivan tune and then go into an alvin lee tune yeah so we we, we had it all going and we did a bunch of gigs for a while there were places we could work, mostly in town. And we did the cabaret clubs for a while, which was hysterical, because we, we got nominated for, like, cabaret awards. Yeah, I remember that, yeah. And and my dad, my dad would, come and, would talk about it, that a lot, yeah. These audiences that we're used to seeing, like, a, a woman sitting on a stool singing Gershwin tunes, and all of a sudden they get us. <laughs> <laughs> and we were, like, blowing their minds. But they couldn't deny that we were good. Yeah. So that was fun. Yeah. And it still is when we do it. Yeah, you guys are you guys are great. I didn't believe there was a stupid day I didn't believe it was for real I didn't believe it, but I found out real quick Once I got behind the wheel There's people driving like they've never seen a car Folks stopped at green lights, no idea where they are I think I'll keep driving right to the nearest bar Happy,
0: stupid, diddy, you. You know, around the in the early 2000s, mid 2000s, you were also involved uh, running as the musical director, right, for Darlene Love? Was it, or, or were you? You were. I know you were involved working with her for a while.
1: Yeah, I, I was Darlene's MD between like 04 and 2010 or 2011, somewhere around there. I mean, there wasn't a lot of gigs though. Mm. There was one year where we did no gigs at all. Oh, well. uh, there was. We always did a few Christmas shows because that's what Darlene became synonymous with. It was Christmas. And uh, at one point, she did a run at Feinstein's with Frida Payne, and they went out as Love and Pain. (laughs) It was a real cabaret show, though. It was Feinstein's, and we did it for like two weeks or something like that. But there wasn't a whole lot of work. But yeah, the the ones we did were fun. Christmas shows were a riot because we would do a lot of the Specter Christmas stuff.
0: And you also worked with Bay Lavette, right? For a while. are you still? I don't know if you still work with her, but I know you were before the pandemic. At least you were doing a lot of stuff with her.
1: I do some stuff. I did some stuff with her where she was kind of between keyboard players, and she just had a show that was with her and a keyboard player that was uh, somewhere driving distance mm. during the pandemic. And I I did five or six of those. Yeah. Because uh, her husband, Kevin Kylie is one of my best friends. Okay. And I've become very good friends with Betty as a result. So she used me as a keyboard player on some stuff she did, yeah. Yeah.
0: And, you know, you've, I know you uh, I'm just going to name drop people you've played with. You know, you play played with Donald Fagan before. You know, you, you gig with, you know, with uh, Bernard Purdy, you know, through, with Rob Pavarazzi um, a lot. And, but who, besides the Herbie moment, who's, who's one of the, you know, most well-known people that you really treasured playing with? And as you know, fi- figure out it's like the one of the
1: most memorable, you know, moments. Uh, Bette Midler was fabulous because I it did a one-shot thing with her, mm-hmm. and we had a rehearsal like in the afternoon, and then we went and did a gig at night. It was like a benefit at some place mm-hmm. in town, and uh, I had just we had just had my first child, whose name was Sophie, mm-hmm. and Bette Midler has a daughter named Sophie, so. My wife is like, oh, you got to show pictures of Sophie <laughs> to Bette Midler. I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. And so I very sheepishly went up to Bette Midler on a break with this stack of photos. You know, when you have your first child, yeah. you have a stack of photos in hand. Well, now, now it's or a phone days, full of photos. But yeah, these yeah, days, it, it, you're yeah. on your phone. But in those days, you just had an envelope full of yeah. like photos of your child, basically the same shot in different angles. Uh, so I went up to Bette, uh, it's really nice to meet you. I'm just, I have a daughter. Sophie too, and she well, where's the pictures? <laughs> so I pulled like one picture out and I showed it to her. And she grabbed the envelopes. And said, I want to see all of them. And she flipped through them. She talked to me for like 10 minutes. About it, oh, and cool. I was like flabbergasted. <laughs> I said, Wow, what a what a like nice, normal person. She doesn't yeah. know me from Adam, and she was really sweet. And obviously she was an amazing performer. Yeah. And at that at that same gig which I'm thinking is maybe 1990, 89, somewhere around. We walk in, and it's a big, like, armory, and there's people standing around gabbing and eating cocktail food and drinking and stuff. And I hear this guy playing piano and singing. I'm like, this guy's really good. i got to find out who this is. So I walk over. I'm watching this guy for a little while. And then I start, I say, listen, I'm here to play with Ben. I have to tell you, like... I don't, nor, I don't normally go up to people and, like, yeah. say, you're really good. But, like, you're really good. What's your name? It says, Harry Connick Jr. Oh, wow. <laughs> this was before yeah. he was, anybody knew who he was. But I was, like, sucked in by this guy. He was tremendous. I said, I didn't anybody, like, doing a cocktail hour, playing all this New Orleans shit wow. and singing like, singing like Sinatra. He was tremendous. He must have been, like, 18 years old. Oh, wow. I'm like, whoa, okay. <laughs> and then we heard about him later on. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: but yeah, that's that's a that's an amazing story.
1: The Fagan gigs were fun because he was kind of orphaned from Steely, Steely yeah, Dan yeah. at that point, and him and Becker weren't working together. So he started doing gigs and I kind of think he kind of put together that New York Rock and Soul review, mm-hmm. which was him as kind of the headliner, and then he would have Phoebe Snow and Cindy Lauper and all these other people like ran very random people. In to do two or three songs and stuff like that, and we were kind of the house band. So and we we're going to be doing some Steely Dan tunes, Jimmy tells me. So I said, okay, I'll be ready. I There was a B3 there. I brought a Clavinet and a Rhodes. Mm-hmm. I actually schlepped a wow. Clavinet <laughs> and a Rhodes to the Lone Star. And I set them up, and... Then Fagan comes on, we're sound checking, we're rehearsing and stuff, and Fagin comes on. It's like, oh, I'm going to play this Rhodes. So I just sat back at the B3. I moved the clavinet yeah. over on top of the b so he commandeered my Rhodes. And the fun part was Fagin comes out, and Becker is in the audience. <laughs> and we are under, somebody comes in the dressing room before the gig and says... Walter Becker is here under no circumstances is he to come up and sit in. He is, he is totally refused, like he's not going to play. Mm-hmm. So just get used to it. Well, Fagan comes up and plays a few then he introduces Becker, and the place <laughs> goes nuts. And they start, Walter Becker, they start chanting. It's like a yeah. soccer game. And then Fagin's like, Well, he's, and Becker's like, he, he has, knows he has to come up yeah. and play. So. I'm sitting back there playing organ, and uh, Becker's playing guitar, and Fagan's sitting there singing "Chain Lightning." I guess I'm playing with Steely Dan. <laughs> that's and that's they did amazing. like four Steely Dan tunes. That's that, awesome. It was that was the extent of Steely Dan at that yeah. point. Anyway, was those two guys, and that was how they kind of that was how they kind of got reunited oh, wow. because I think they were on the outs for a little while. That's great. That's an amazing story. But Fagan, uh, me, me, and Jimmy, and a drummer named Gary Goldfarb used to do every Monday. Imagine a steady Monday gig oh. at at a small club up on the Upper West Side called JP's, and we just did every Monday night there. And Fagan, who had been in hiding for a while, started to come out. And he would just bring a melodica mm-hmm. on the gigs, and he wouldn't sing; he'd just blow melodica yeah. solos on like R and B tunes and stuff. That now that that's that's actually more interesting than the, the Steely Dan. Just to like, it kind of was, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Fagan
0: just walking into this place on a Monday night and just, you know, playing melodica. That's, that's, yeah.
1: It was, he was was almost like a rehab thing for him because I think he'd been like injured somehow by what went on with Becker, what Mm. went on with the group or whatever. And he went into hiding for a little while. This was his like coming out again, Mm. but he would just bring a melodica and play souls. He would not sing. Yeah. He wouldn't open his, he never opened his mouth in like six months of this. But we'd have all kinds of wacky people. Lester Chambers would come in, Paul Butterfield came in. What? He would And Paul Butterfield wouldn't play harmonica. <laughs> he, would, he insisted on playing piano.
0: Jeez.
1: He didn't even bring a harmonica. And <laughs> that's been dead. right before he passed away, too, right? <laughs> yeah, it was right before he died cuz he was yeah. he was kind of out there at that point. Yeah. Yeah. And you know as I mentioned earlier uh, at the top
0: of the show, you've been playing organ on the weekends for the Yankees now for what, 20 years? Is it? Yeah, uh, this is my 19th like, year. Almost 20. Okay. I knew it was yeah. getting close. Are you still loving that gig? Cuz I know that I know that when you got it it was like a huge deal for you um after almost two decades is it still something you love doing?
1: Pretty much. Pretty much. It's yeah. fun. Uh it's it's work. It's yeah. a weird gig. It's structurally like not what you would think it would be. But Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm, I feel very privileged to be doing it because there's only X amount of opportunities. You know, I mean, there's only 15 or 18 major league organists, and I'm one of those, so I have to feel privileged by that. And and I'm starting to make it more fun because they opened it up a little bit to where I I could bring a drum machine in there now with some like EDM and reggaeton and weird beats and stuff, and use that. So I'm now playing like New York, New York with like trap beats <laughs> and stuff. <laughs> and they, they wanted that. They yeah. said we wanna modernize we're gonna modernize our music. We want it to be like a club atmosphere and we want the organ to do that too. So I just bring this drum machine in now and I do I play all the old standards with like E D M beats and dubstep beats. <laughs> it's, it's it's wild. That's that's awesome. So at the end of every episode, we
0: ask our guests what music they, they've they been you know, listening to or digging lately. Um, so what are three songs, albums, or bands that you've been really enjoying lately?
1: Uh, right now I'm reading a book by Captain Beefheart's former drummer, John French, mm-hmm. who went by the name Drumbo, and he's, he's written an exhaustive book on his experience with Captain Beefheart. Wow. And, uh... So I was just listening to some of his solo stuff post Beefheart, which is pretty interesting. Uh, he's a hell of a drummer. Yeah, well, you have to <laughs> and be he, and he, in that group. And he, yeah, well, he, uh, the story, the real story is that he did all the arrangements of that stuff. Beefheart just banged these little snippets on piano, and John French transcribed the stuff and taught it to the band. Oh, wow. John French did all that stuff. And, and wrote his own drum parts uh, on Trout Mask Replica and all those yeah. albums going forward. is really remarkable stuff. So I'm kind of immersed in that right now. Set a hip a bit, after you run out me. Hold that wicked popper, have the warmer so you see them. When you scream my pistol, green, white at the holy me Maybe that'll Maybe that'll Maybe that'll I was just listening to some old uh, Duke Records R&B, Bobby Bland and Johnny Ace and Junior Parker and all that kind of stuff. Further on up the road, someone's gonna. Hate Someone gonna hurt you like you hurt me Further on after the Baby, you just wait and see you got to And uh, see, what else? Oh, there's, there's a friend of mine from Ridgewood that used to tape performances of all the bands on Reel to Reel, mm. and he's just turned up and he said, I've right, had 30 or so tapes, I'm transferring them over to digital, and I want to get these out to everybody that played on them. Now, so this is going back 40 years, mm-hmm. right, uh, longer than that. And I said, well, i got a Dropbox, i got plenty of space on it, so you can throw them up there and we can have everybody have at them. So I'm going back and checking out some of this stuff that I played on or heard when I was in high school, which is really cool, because... Yeah. You you go back and do that sometimes. Oh, I, right? I do that a lot. <laughs> yeah. it's really interesting to see the progression where yes. you came from and what you did and how you did it and go like what was I thinking or yeah. whatever so so that's what I've been up to Ed thanks for coming on uh before
0: I, I do let you go I wanted to just you know thank you uh directly for influencing my taste in music I don't know if you remember this for my bar mitzvah uh you and, and Max gave me a handful of cds I forget if it was five or six but There was the James Brown 20 All-Time Greatest Hits, The Best of Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers, Sly and the Family Stone Greatest Hits, Mahavishnu Orchestra's Inner Mounting Flame, and a blues compilation that had like B.B. King, Elmore James, that kind of stuff. Those those records, those albums had a profound influence on me. So I really need to thank you for that. Like those are like... Between the Art Blakey and the Mahavishnu record and the slide and the Family Stone, those three, like, changed my direction in what I was listening to. For well,
1: Great. Because that was the idea. Yeah. I mean, that's why we did him. And it wasn't random selection either. I said, this is this is what he needs to hear. Yeah. So, good. That's, we yeah. should accomplish that. So, that was... Designed to make your ears bigger. Yeah, and I, and, I just it, 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 it did, it definitely did. It opened my brain and ears. we knew it. We we knew you would you would listen to this stuff and dig it and take it in the spirit in which it was intended, and grow off it. Because you were you were pretty serious into it by yeah. the time we met you you were like you were it was pretty clear that you and Sammy were going for it
0: yeah and he just, yeah. my brother just went for it a little bit harder than I did but uh, you know it it all works out so it all works out yeah Ed thanks again for coming on it was a real pleasure talking to you and hearing all these great stories and I hope to see you you all very soon
1: thanks Josh.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode and a special thanks again to Ed Alstrom for coming on to the show. If you want to see what Ed is up to, you can check out his website, edalstrom.com, follow him on Twitter at Yankees Organist, or look him up on Facebook. He also has a YouTube channel where he, you can find his video series called Dose of B3, which is where he does covers of famous songs on an organ in true Ed Alstrom fashion. There's also a few videos on there with the aforementioned group Mr. Clean as well as some live videos of him playing at Yankee Stadium over the years. Sadly, a lot of Ed's music isn't found on streaming services. The only one that I could find is his album called Gettin' Organized, which you can find on Spotify. But I'm going to post links to the Chumpot album and his album with the Acid Cabaret called The Record People Are Coming. Those links should be found in the podcast description. Otherwise, you may have to do some digging on YouTube to find some stuff that is out of print, particularly the Bob's Diner or Bob Smith Band records, as well as some music that he performed with the Vivino Brothers on The Uncle Floyd Show. If you enjoyed what you heard and haven't already, go ahead and follow, like, subscribe, or whatever you need to do to automatically get new episodes of this podcast. We'd also really appreciate it if you left a review on whichever podcasting platform you use or just told a friend or two about the show. If you'd like to follow us on social media, we're on Instagram and Twitter at Dad Rocks Pod, as well as on Facebook by just searching up Dad Rocks Podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or any show ideas for us, or just want to give us a shout, you can always message us on those social media outlets or email us at dadrockspod at gmail.com. Once again, thanks for listening today. And remember, Dads, you rock.